Well, good morning, church. As Zach said, happy Father's Day to the dads. Uh, We will take a time after the message to specifically pray for you. I I think there's a a pointed application point from the message that will serve you as we pray for you, no matter how old you are as a dad. So if you would please turn open to Revelation chapter 11. This is a full and very thick chapter. And 12, 13, 14, 15, that's with the images of the beasts and the dragons. And this is, this is thick, thick weeds. But thankfully, we have the illumination that the Spirit provides to give us a sense and an understanding. And I appreciate how um, Devin prayed for us that something would be awakened in us. That's, that's key. Because I do think that, um, that when we hear the word of God, that's the response. It, it, it's a call to action. It's a, it's a movement. God, you, I see you, and now I want to move towards you. But in this particular case, in response to this message, I think the, uh, the movement is toward those, and like we sang, those around us. As we move toward him, we find that we are moving toward those around us for the gospel presentation and gospel proclamation. All right, quickly to catch us up to where we are, uh, we're in the, the in-between of the sixth and seventh trumpet sounds that are, and these cycles we saw with the seals, and now the trumpets, and we'll look at the bowls. Uh, there are these cycles of the first four that we believe are happening all throughout human history. Uh, and there comes to be a fifth, and then that is a, it's a proclamation of what's happening in heaven during that time. And the sixth uh, begins to be, here's, here's the end of the world happening. And the chaos and the confusion and the terror and torment, all of that is there. And, and there's a pause in between the seals, the sixth and seventh seals, and now the sixth and seventh trumpets for God to tell his church specifically, I got you. You're still on task. You're still on mission because God is moving the mission of the advancement of his kingdom to the consummation that Jesus will come back and he will take his bride to himself. What we read in this chapter is he says, come up here. What a joy one day to hear those words. Amen. Come up here. Now, I think it'll be louder than that. I think it'll be unmistakable. But as we look at this, we want to put ourselves uh, in the position of saying, God, what do you have for me? And chapter 10, chapter 11, this is this pause, this interlude. uh, In chapter, I'm sorry, verse 15 of this chapter, we have the seventh trumpet that is blown. So uh, follow along as I read God's word. Then I saw, sorry, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them to be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has come and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And they shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, wa- who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. But the, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Father, we depend on the goodness of your grace and the gift of your spirit to see that we might live by faith in Christ. We love you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, as we have been considering and in this study of Revelation, we are, uh, this is halfway, by the way, through the books, 22 chapters, so we're, we're now halfway through. We can be thinking, what, what do I do with all of this? And what we're supposed to have this understanding is there there's one we are comforted because our destiny awaits in heaven but we also should be motivated by compassion to spread the gospel the good news of the message of, of salvation through Christ alone to the lost and dying that are around us I was just I've been overjoyed to hear uh, of several people who have had opportunities in the past few weeks to share the gospel with people in their lives. Uh, just a few guys Wednesday morning were sharing that. I love the fact that some of the other guys Wednesday morning were like, I don't, remember, I don't remember the last time I shared the gospel with anybody. Both of those are appropriate responses. Because we, if we haven't, we, we want to be quickened. Wait a minute. I want to look for those opportunities. Because listen, church, God's giving those opportunities all the time. He's giving them all the time. And, and let's lean in. Because the greatest application for our study through Revelation is this. Share the gospel. 
Share it with the people in your house. Share it with your family. Share it with your neighbors. Share it in the workplace. Share it with the, ple- the, the places that you regularly visit. Share the gospel. That's, that's what we're to do. We look for opportunities along the way, and God will open those up. Uh, there's a lot in this chapter that needs unpacking, so we'll get right to it. Uh, but remember, here's the goal of this vision. Uh, this is in your notes. God preserves his people in the proclamation of the gospel until his saving work is finished. God preserves his people in the proclamation of the gospel until his saving work is finished. The great commission will be completed when God wants it to. Now this chapter is the next step of, remember John in the the end of chapter 10, he's recommissioned to prophesy. And we believe that's, that's a commission for the entire church. It's the Great Commission. Here, go tell people about Jesus and train them and raise them up in the faith. And we can see just from the paragraph breaks in this that we have three, three things to look at in this chapter. One is the, the mission witness, in the first three verses. Then uh, mission participation, the experience of the church while we're on mission. And then uh, when the seventh trumpet is blown, we have the mission accomplished. And it really will be done. It will be finished. So the first three verses, we see first that John, he's given a a measuring rod to measure the temple. And here, as we look at this, we need to ask some questions about, (coughs) excuse me, the temple of God. Is this a physical temple? Is this a, a temple in Jerusalem? Will this be the temple that's rebuilt in Jerusalem? Is it a figurative temple? Is it representative of something? Remember way back in the first uh, message that we did to set up this, this series, I, I gave four views of timing that are traditional views of looking at how things occur uh, within this, the timing of how things occur in the book of Revelation as we see the visions unfolded. The first would be a preterist view, meaning that all of the events of Revelation were predicting and moving toward the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So all the preterists would think all of Revelation, one, John wrote it before that. We think that, it, I don't agree with the preterist view, but I think John wrote this in about 96 AD. But a preterist view would say he wrote it way before, maybe a few years before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when Rome came in, burned everything to the ground. And that's why it's still not there today. It hasn't been there since 70 AD. Um, so the preterist says all of these things have already happened. A futurist looks at these and says the events will happen just before a final crisis, before a final end time thing. So maybe we're experiencing things now, but really it's really all toward the future. Uh, historicist view would see that the events occur chrono- uh, chronologically between the two advents of Christ, his birth and his second coming or his, his work of salvation when he was born on the earth, his incarnation, he went to the cross, rose from that point to when he returns to the second time, it's chronological. So we look at the seventh trumpet opens up the seven, uh, I'm sorry, the seventh seal opens up the seventh trumpet. So everything is happening in a chronological order. This was a very big way to look at end times back in the 80s and 90s. So if you grew up, uh, and you did your study on because year 2000 was, whoa, Y2K, watch out. It's going to happen. We don't know. We've been <laughs> looking forward to that year, and it's just everything's going to obliterate. It didn't, but we thought it would. 
many of us. But if you grew up in Christ in the 80s and 90s, you were presented most probably with a historicist view of end times. Now, the, uh, there's a, a fourth one. Then it's a general. You'll meet some people that are like, I'm a mixture of all of these or somehow. Uh, I'm kind of a mixture of them. I'm a mixture of idealist and futurist as I look at the timing events. The idealist says these events are symbolic of principles that occur throughout the church age. They're, they're repeated patterns. I believe that because when we look at uh, Mark 13, when Jesus unfolds the end time things, I, I think he's, he's showing... Because he says one thing about, uh, I forget what verse it is in Mark 13, but he says uh, the gospel will go forward and then the end will come. I mean, the gospel's still going forward, but he's saying all these things as definitive, these are going to happen. So I think Jesus even indicates that these are repeated patterns throughout church history. Um, so I'm a little, I'm, a, I'm like a modified idealist, futurist as I look at these things. But if I do believe John wrote this revelation in 96 AD, then this can't be the physical temple that he's measuring in terms of when it's going to be uh, as he was walking around Rome that was destroyed in 70 AD. But this could be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And John is told to measure that rebuilt temple. Maybe he's seeing something in the future that will be physically. This could also be a figurative temple. What is this temple of God? I think this is a spiritual temple that exists physically in the redeemed, in us. Because John is told to measure worshipers. Look what he says. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. How do you measure, what are you measuring in a person? I think he's measuring the church of God that is now the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, the first part of that verse. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at, remember, the temple that's being, that Jesus walked in was actually the third iteration of God's presence on the earth. The first was in Eden. The second was the tabernacle that traveled with the people of God until they were in the promised land. And then David says, I got this beautiful house God's dwelling in a dent. I'm going to build him a temple. God says, not for you. You store everything up. Your son's going to do it. Solomon builds the huge temple. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys it. Hezekiah rebuilds. We have Zerubbabel uh, with the, through the prophet Zechariah. They, they come back. They rebuild it. Eh, wasn't as glorious as Solomon. Hezekiah does some improvements. And then we have Herod, right, uh, several years before Jesus is born, but right before Jesus is born, Herod does all of these temple constructions and he rebuilds it great again. And that's when Rome came in, 70 AD, destroyed it. Remember when Jesus died? The curtain of the temple was what? Between the Holy of Holies and the holy place? It was torn in two from top to bottom. God was declaring, my temple will no longer be a physical place where people on the earth will come and visit. My temple will now be in my people and it will go out. 
It won't be something that you come visit. It's something that spreads out over the earth. And so Habakkuk 2.14, when he says the, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, I believe is a picture of what the church's mission is to do. It's the Great Commission. Go out and spread the gospel over all the earth because God's doing it. We're to participate. He's doing it for his glory. So he wants to save people. Now, what I think John is being told is to measure and to mark off for God's protection. He's saying, measure the temple, because I'm going I'm to remind my people that I'm their wall. I'm their God. In Zechariah 2, 5, we read this. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. I think Zechariah is prophesying what God would be for his church. They would think there was a, a, a sort of physical answer to that when Jesus was walking around the temple. But remember, even Jesus said, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again. He was talking of himself. Everybody thought, what are you talking about? You can't do that. It's taken a lot of years to do what we have in front of us. So God talks about a spiritual temple. Jesus uh, prophesied for that. But take this church. He is a wall of fire around us. And he tells John, measure my people and remind them, I got you. I got you. God preserves his people in the proclamation of the gospel until his saving work is finished. Then we have an outer court that he's told not to measure. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. John's not to measure something outside. Within the, the temple structure, you had the place, the closest part of the temple where sacrifices at the altar of sacrifice, where sacrifices were made, was only for uh, ethnic Jews. All the Gentiles, the non-Jews, had to stay in the court of the Gentiles, the outer part. So what, remember, we have the temple now is those who repent. It's the mystery of the gospel, chapter 10. Mystery of the gospel is being proclaimed that Gentiles can be saved too. And we see that in the book of Acts with Cornelius. Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he says, Whoa, the same gift of the Spirit that was given to us is now given to you? Peter's mind is blown. He goes back and reports that to everybody. That's the mystery of the gospel. So this mystery is being revealed. But if this is a spiritual a figurative temple, then the outer court is really where unbelievers have, where unbelievers make life really hard for believers. And that's the world we live in. And he says it's, they're going to trample for 42 months. Again, depending on a view of timing, how will, we, how will we interpret 42 months? It could be literal. Is this a literal 42-month period? Or is it representative? I think it's representative. Remember, 42 months equals... 1,260 days, which also equals three and a half years. But what's happening with this 42 months, a battle is being described. The outer court, we have the people of God where his presence dwells in those people, and they have to go outside sometimes and, and interact with the world. And these are, these are spiritual battles being, being uh, uh, conveyed, where the light of truth that all believers carry with the presence of the Spirit, it dwells in the midst of lies and darkness, the lies of darkness. So we have a light of truth and lies of darkness that are in constant battle with one another, which also reminds us 
The person that you're most irritated with on this planet is not the real problem. I know this is probably disappointing. Like, can, Jeff, can you just tell me that the person is the problem so my life will be better? We really want to hear that. But listen, Ephesians 6, 12 tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual. There's heavenly places. There's heavenly battles going on that we feel uh, the, the tension of. But there's also spiritual battle that we participate in as we bring the light of truth into a world that's dark with lies. So he's describing a spiritual battle. But I think we see the number 42 is very important uh, in Scripture in conveying God's intent. There were 42 stages of the wilderness journey of the people of God before they entered the promised land. God was doing something with them. There were 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, recorded in Matthew. For 42 months, there was no rain when Elijah prayed that there would be no rain. And listen, Jesus' ministry on this earth, 42 months long. Three and a half years. So what do we have? I think what we have is this picture that God is using with this 42 months. He's saying it's, it's ministry opportunity to accomplish what God desires. And I think the biggest thing is Jesus' life and ministry is representative of that 42 months. So God is telling his church, you're going to minister, but you're going to minister in the same way that my son ministered. And I think we see that uh, in the participation. We minister like Jesus ministered while he was on this earth. Then we're told we have two witnesses who wear sackcloth. Why two? In the Old Testament, we find out that a testimony uh, is established, verified, and legalized on the testimony of two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall the charge be established. That's why Jesus sent out the disciples, remember, uh, uh, in twos. Luke chapter 10, I want to say. He sends the disciples out in pairs. Well, it's not just for protection kind of stuff. Like It was, no, that's the testament. You're going to testify of Jesus on the earth now. Repent. Believe in Christ. We got two. We, we've heard the teacher ourselves. It's establishing a testimony. Now, again, some people can look at this and say this is two literal people that will occur toward the end of all time, whether it's a futurist or historicist uh, perspective on timing. But if we're staying consistent with timing as representative numbers and symbols, then these two represent the witness of the church. God is calling the church to bear witness to him. And Jesus has given authority to his church to preach the gospel. Remember, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, before he says, go. And make disciples. And they're wearing sackcloth. I think this is the manner of the church's witness. Sackcloth was worn by prophets and by repentant mourners. So I think the church, one, as prophets, the church is to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, they're killed when we get farther into this chapter because they, the, people, the witnesses were a torment to people. There will always be the culture trying to silence the church's witness. Why? Because it's condemning. Now, we don't want to do the condemning, but we preach a message, a message of condemnation. Repent or be eternally punished by God. 
And Jesus says, as they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They'll kill the messenger so they don't hear the message anymore. And that's what they do. And then they start congratulating themselves and offering presents. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we are to preach for the repentance of sins. Remember, the first word that John the Baptist and then Jesus preach when they come to the gospel is repent. First word of the gospel, repent. Now, the church is also to live repentance, meaning we're broken over sin. We're broken over our own sin. Look, culture's filled with... I don't want to go to church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Sort of. What the church is filled with is a bunch of ailing folks trying to get over their sin, but what the church, the, the culture should come in contact with in the church is people who are sorry for their sin. Hypocrites aren't sorry for their sin. We should be sorry. Like I'm, I'm just a, a struggle. And I really over want to come it, but overcome it, but I, I just I struggle. It's a reality, an authenticity to that. That actually, I think, is part of the light of the truth. But we are, we're broken over our own sin. Listen, we're also broken over the sins of others. We're broken over the sins of, of rebellious people who have no idea and don't care that they are sinning against God. We're broken over sin. So the church is to preach repentance and the church is to live repentance. And then we're describing through verses 4 through 14 a mission participation. First thing, we have a powerful proclamation. I love this picture. The two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These two witnesses are likened to the olive trees and the lampstands of Zechariah 4. And when we see that picture, the lampstands also show up in Revelation 1. The picture in Zechariah records, he, he's, he's encouraging the people of God to rebuild the temple, particularly uh, Zerubbabel, who was, the, uh, he was in, uh, in the line of David, so he was a rightful king, and Joshua, who was the high priest. They were the two figurative witnesses then, but they had a literal component that they were walking out the rebuilding of the temple after the exile. But listen, Zechariah comes to these two and says this, This is the word from the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This doesn't depend on human strength. It doesn't depend on human intellect. It doesn't depend on anything but God's spirit coming to his people. So with this picture, these are the two olive trees. And in Zechariah, the, there is a, the oil that is supplied to the lampstands is the spirit himself. He's supplying. No longer will the priest have to come and keep adding oil to that lamp so it can burn. The, the light of truth will come from the spirit's presence in his people that shines outward and shines ever flowing, constantly, never ceasing. Now, our application point is this. Do we, one, trust the Spirit's presence to do that? Two, do we operate with the Spirit's presence in everything that we do? This is where I'm convicted. Because so easily I can slip into a mindset of, I got this. God's got me. So I got this. And, and, and these little ways that infiltrate into our lives where we just don't trust God for things. Yeah, I've shared this before. In my house, we pray for the lost a lot. Meaning, we pray for lost things around our house all the time. Like, oh, can't find that. But do you know, there are some times 
And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to get it this time. I'm going to figure out where it is. I'm not going to pray this time. And I don't find it until I pray. Lord, will you please help us find this object or this piece of paper, whatever it is. And the Lord always does. Because it's those little moments. And for our family, that's how God shows us that he's into the details. But it, it reminds us to trust him with all of those details. But are we living spirit-empowered lives? Are we trying to do it by our strength or are we surrendered to his strength? The spirit empowers our witness for the mission that God calls us to. And he will give us, listen to this, he will give us the miracles of Elijah and Moses along the way. Do we believe that? That's a struggle, isn't it? Look, check this out. If anyone, second half of verse 5, if anyone would harm them, this well, one, fire spews out of their mouths, consumes their foes. I think that's prayer. I think that's the picture there, prayer. They have, verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Direct, uh, uh, direct reference to Elijah praying over Ahab because he was a rebellious king of Israel saying, you're not, in order to God, for God to get your attention, you're not going to have rain for three years. Ended up being three and a half. There was no rain. And then look, verse 7. Oh, second half uh, of verse 6. No rain fall in the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. That's Moses. So God is telling the church through his spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit did those things. He's the one that prevented the rain, and he's the one that brought all the plagues. And we have the same power in us, not to wield, to, to just vindicate ourselves or to pass judgment on others to make our lives easier. No, 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 no. For gospel proclamation. So when we see something standing in our way, we're able to say, like Elijah and like Moses. Now, both of these men struggled. Now, James chapter 5 tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And we go, but I'm not a man like Elijah. So that's how we disqualify ourselves. No, he was just like us. And he prayed. And God showed up. But Elijah dealt with his own doubts. Moses dealt with his own doubts. We're in good company. But what's the answer? Not to figure out how to answer our doubts. It's how to trust the presence of the Spirit of God in us. The same presence that hovered, same Spirit that hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. It was light. Church, this is the spirit that he has made to dwell in our hearts. But yet, we're so full of our complaints about how God doesn't show up in particular areas of our lives rather than rising up to say, no, God, what, do you what have you given me? I'm not going to shut up the sky so people can pay more attention to me. I'm going to say, God... Rend the heavens and come down. And every prayer that we pray for the lost, we're praying him for inter you intercept rebellion, intercept faulty thinking, intercept it all. And arrest their minds, arrest their hearts, that they might know you and be saved. It's always connected to gospel proclamation. That's what Jesus says. Say to that mountain, move, be cast into the sea. And it will be done for you. 
Now, I don't, I don't think that's a measure. Like, okay, I want to grow in my spirituality so I can tell a mountain to move, and then I've arrived. No. Jesus is just saying, I think he's given a hyperbole. No, I can't say he's given a... Uh, using hyperbole there. But he probably meant it. But, it, but we're not, it's not giving that to gauge ourselves. I think he's giving it to say, you got so much because you have the Spirit. You have so much. But yet we rest on our own... Strength, the rest of our own intellect. But God's desire, Jesus' desire is for us to do more than he did. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. And who is, remember, he's going to the Father. Who did he promise? The Spirit. Greater works than Jesus? We got some trusting to do, right? We have some participation in the mission to gain. So we have God's spirit with us. In verse 7 through verse 11, I think we see a picture of Jesus suffering. And the church is a picture of Jesus suffering. God preserves his people in the proclamation of the gospel until his saving work is finished. He does not insulate, listen, he does not insulate his people from persecution and suffering. But he vindicates the faith of his people through their suffering. And his presence will always remain with his people for peace. There are some harsh realities awaiting believers. There's death awaiting believers. We're introduced to the beast that comes from the bottomless pit. We'll learn more about the beast in chapter 13. It's the same beast that goes after the offspring of the woman, Christians, those who've trusted in Christ for salvation. And then we have the city that's called Sodom and Egypt. I think this is a figurative city because it's one. It says where Jesus, where the Lamb was crucified. The Lamb wasn't, Jesus wasn't crucified in Sodom and Egypt. He's crucified in Jerusalem. But I think what's being pointed at is the mindsets of these two cities that still exist in every city today. Sodom, immorality. Anything goes. Just do you. Feels good, do it. That was Sodom. And we still hear that echo in the choices that people make around us all the time. And, and we battle with Egypt. Egypt was the top city, country, nation of the world. They were the world dominant nation. So advancement, achievement. So this mindset of and where the immorality is, I don't want Jesus in because he's going he's gonna to ruin my fun. But I don't want Jesus also because we're so intellectual that we don't need him anymore. So that's where we hear things like Karl Marx saying that religion is the opium of the masses. And when you really can think long enough and hard enough, you'll, you'll understand that you don't need Jesus anymore. No, you just think you're Mr. Smarty Pants. That's all you think. But we need to live in a way that's going to show them a difference. Now, this same mentality, immorality, advancement, achievement, listen, that's what crucified Jesus. Those are the mindsets of those that crucified him. And these mindsets still exist. And we're told they will kill believers. Believers will be killed and the world will turn and celebrate. They will desecrate. They will refuse to put him in a tomb. Just leave him there to rot. They will also celebrate, exchange presents with one another. That's weird. That's sadistic. But that is the celebration that will occur because finally, 
We don't have the Christians telling us what to do. They will congratulate themselves on the destruction of the church. And they think they will appear to have won. And everybody looking on will think they won. Remember when uh, everybody looked on Jesus? Everybody thought Jesus lost. But waited three, and a half, three days. And what happened? God had the last word. And I think this is what we have in this verses 12 to 14. Show us a divine deliverance. But look, we have like a Trinitarian Participation. The Spirit empowers. We suffer like the Son in order to draw attention to His work for us. But this divine deliverance is brought by the Father. It's brought by the Father Himself. And He did it just like Jesus when His breath went back into Jesus to raise Jesus after those three days. And He was rocked back to reality in victory. And everybody saw it. And they knew about it, but they even tried, they, they tried to deny it. God shows up. The greatest when it looks like he's been defeated. That's when he shows up the greatest. And God will preserve the witness of his church with his breath of life. And then God calls his people home. Come up here. What a, I think it's going to be a joyful shout. And it's going to boom. And we're, oh, I don't think we are even prepared for what's going to happen. But I do think this come up here is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> or how about 15? Behold, I tell you a mystery. What We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. I think that's the seventh trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. What a moment. And we see, people see it. People will see that. I think we're, we're, I think we're, they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Now, in the Old Testament, we see, and, and again, going back to Elijah, after Elijah does the Mount Carmel prophets of Baal, uh, it tells Israel, how, God's people, how long will you limp between two different opinions? Pick one. Pick Baal, pick God, but stop this going back and forth thing. Well, God shows up uh, in power and consumes the offering that was, had been wet with water, and it was so intense that it evaporated all the water even. And revival doesn't happen the way that Elijah wants. He thought everybody would just, okay, finally we're going to repent. They still didn't repent. They still had hard hearts. So Elijah, in his struggle and his doubt, he's like, what was that? Why did I even do that, God? I'm the only one left. And God made this promise to him. Nope. I have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. It's a remnant. I think that was a tenth remnant. But what's happening here is a reversed math. Rather than a tenth being the good guys, a tenth were judged and killed off. That means this. Nine-tenths possibly repent. They were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What mercy. What mercy that God would give that opportunity. All right, you've seen it. Maybe that is that opportunity. Or maybe, maybe, it's, maybe they're still in their rebellion. And they still have their fist against God saying, God, I don't like any. Yeah, you're God. I don't like it. I hope it's the mercy where God gives the last opportunity. 
and just saves nine-tenths of everybody who's there. Oh, what mercy, what glory. This is a merciful God that we serve. But in the last half of the chapter, we have mission accomplished. But here's the weird part. Look at verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. When I read about the seventh trumpet, what's the woe? How's this bad news? Well, for us, it's the greatest news. But for unbelievers, it seals an eternity apart from God. That's devastating. That's a woe. Woe. But here, the, the announcement, the kingdom of the world has come. The kingdom has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Remember, we pray the principle, God, as your, as your will is already done in heaven, bring it down here. Come, establish your kingdom. It will be established. That's the promise that we have for Jesus to reign and for peace to finally reign. There's worship, 24 elders sit on the thrones, they fall on their faces, they worship. What are they saying? Thank you, thank you. But here, look, second half of verse 18, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who bear your name, both small and great. You know, I think we have our own list of who the small and great saints are. And I wonder if God is going to completely... Uh, turn that upside down. I hope he does. I hope we learn in heaven of all the prayer warriors that never said anything about it and just prayed all the time. And I, I hope it becomes I hope it becomes a situation where we we hear of somebody woken up in the middle of the night and is just interceding maybe not even knowing what he or she is interceding for, but then we learn in heaven in the spiritual battle that that prayer accomplished on behalf of a missionary, behalf of a lost child or a lost loved one. Oh, that's cool stuff to find out. But that's our participation now. We cannot, we cannot disqualify ourselves in this participation because we don't think we're great enough. Because God uses the small to do great things. We're all small. So we all know that. We're all small. There's nothing great about me. Small. So we function in the small. You know what? God's going to reward us for our obedience and our faithfulness. And then look, the temple, verse 19, God's temple in heaven will be open. I think this is uh, um, later in chapter 21, 22, we see the, the new Jerusalem coming down. Onto the earth. I think this is a picture of all that God is doing. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. I wonder if that's, maybe people's hearts are open and they see that. Maybe it's a physical temple that comes out and just, this is cool stuff. But what does it tell us? God's presence is here and it's never going away. God establishes his presence. He establishes his peace. Now for our conclusion, I want to, Everybody, everybody has the application point of trusting in the Spirit more. You got that? Cool? Shake your heads. Let me know you heard that. All right, awesome. Now, we uh, fathers, um, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Amen? For the discipling of our children, for the loving of our wives, the discipling of our children and our grandchildren to set an example of the light of truth. And I always hearken back to... Uh, my favorite missionary is John Patton. He went to the New Hebrides, the present-day Vanuatu, 
in the South Pacific. Um, in the 1800s, he was there. And John Patton was on, for four years on an island where the tribes were threatening to kill him and eat him as it was filled with the tribes were cannibals. And he spent his last night on the island in a tree because everybody was out to get him. Now, after four years, this is what he did. But what he remembered in those moments was his dad. He remembered the prayer life of his dad. How his dad would go into a special room in their house called the closet or, or the sanctuary. And, and John Patton would remember his father in there. And this is what he says. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes that shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with this victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? I want to be that kind of dad. I want us to be those kind of dads. That our children, when they face difficulty, they're asking, what would dad do? What has he done? And that they would remember our relationship with God, our prayers. And look, it's hurling back all doubt. With a victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? Dads, let's pray. Lord, we ask for you to empower us with your spirit in ways that would astound us, surprise us, sanctify us. God, we, we don't take lightly that we bear, that you, you have shared your name with us. Father, you have shared your name with us. And re, we really want to steward your name really well. So God, I ask for the dads here that we would be kept from presumptuous sins. You would, you would hide our pride far from us because we're doing the hard heart work alone with you. That the interaction that our children have with us is because we have been dipped in something holy. We have met with God. And the words of our mouth reveal a heart that has undergone such a, a change and, and renovation because of your love. God, we ask for our words to be life. The breath, your very breath into our children, that they may look at their lives and say, God's got me. Let's go. God, would you make us those types of dads that, that what people see publicly has already been established privately in our relationship with you. And God, I pray for us to be dads to believe you for great things. Because of the Spirit's empowerment and presence in our lives, I pray we would be dads who pray bold prayers. And we see you show up in miraculous ways in our lives. Because God, we, 
we, we haven't figured this out. We can't do it. And this can't be by our might or our power. It's got to be by your spirit. So, Lord, we ask for your spirit's anointing, your spirit's empowerment, and your spirit's filling upon all of us that we might boldly proclaim the light of truth in a world that is darkened with lies. God, we love you. Thank you for being such a wonderful, eternal, heavenly father. May we serve and love out of that reality, out of that wonder. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, church, we have received the word. We've been stirred by the word. We need to obey the word. And as a reminder, we have the great commission to lead us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you.